Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and Merry Christmas from everyone here at Penguin. You're listening to the Penguin Podcast and we've got a very Christmassy themed podcast lined up. There's a big focus on food in this episode, so if you're not hungry now, you certainly will be by the end. First up, there's a talk from Penn Vogler, publicist here at Penguin and co-editor of the Great Food series. She's going to be talking to us about the history of the Christmas food and how things like turkeys and mince pies became associated with Christmas dinner. Hello, my name is Penn Vogler and I'm a publicist here at Penguin Press. But I'm also passionate about food history and I've edited a series of books called Great Food. Great Food looks at food writing and recipes from the last 400 years and we just have extracted some of the loveliest bits of them. And so here for Christmas, we thought we'd have a look at some of the dishes that we know and love for our Christmas dinner, turkey, plum pudding, mince pies, all the rest of it, and look at where they've come from. The first book in our series was published in 1615, and it's written by somebody called Jervis Markham. Now, in those days, you didn't have a Nigella Lawson sort of person saying, this is a Christmas meal, and this is a Christmas recipe book, how to make it. But what he does tell us, Jervis, is how to order a feast. And he has a huge, long description that what a housewife needs to know to make her feast go well and to have the right food in the right order. And one of the, the, one of the recipes he gives us is for minced pie. And we, we still know and love and eat minced pies today. But his early mince pie had minced meat in it, and that's obviously where the name mince pie comes from. So it has all the other things that we are familiar with, the raisins, the sultanas, the lovely spices, which would have come over in medieval times from the Crusaders, and were a kind of sign of wealth and lovely rich food. But it also has mincemeat in. And I've made one of these, and I have to say, it's ever so slightly odd. I prefer the contemporary version. So food then was very traditional. He didn't need to say this is what you serve at Christmas because everybody knew. But fortunately for us, we have Samuel Pepys, a bit later on in the century, explaining actually what he did eat for Christmas Day. So he describes having, for example, a shine of beef. He doesn't have turkey, as we do, but beef was a big meal, very traditional, very English meal that people were proud to eat around Christmas. And the other thing he talks about having was a brave mess of plum porridge and a roasted pullet for dinner on Christmas Day in 1662. Plum porridge sounds very peculiar, but actually it would have been something really inherited from medieval times again. It would have been a sort of mess of a, some kind of grain with plums, which is another name for dried fruit of any kind, you know, our raisins, our sultanas and all the rest of it. And it would have been spiced with saffron or spices like cinnamon, nutmeg and ginger. And it started life as an accompaniment to the Lord's venison, which would have been eaten around Christmas time. And then one day, one genius invented pudding. So they poured that mess of plum porridge into a greased cloth, bound it up and put it in a big pot of boiling water, boiled it for three or four or possibly even five hours. And that's how the pudding was invented, and the British, or the English really, were famous for it. And even the Italians talked about how wonderful English puddings were. So Pepys doesn't talk about having a plum pudding, but he does talk about having mince pies. 
and he talks about them being Christmas pies. His wife, one day, is too ill to make mince pies. The next day, she's better, so she can make her Christmas pies. So we know that, actually, by his time, people did think of having minced pies as Christmas meal. In the next century, looking very, very quickly, we don't have anything specifically in our Great Food series that talks about what to eat at Christmas. But I have to say, if you're going to cook one recipe of turkey, make it from William Verrill whose book was published in 1759, and he gives a gorgeous recipe for turkey braised with chestnuts and served with this natty little salpicon, which is a sort of, you know, little kind of chopped up sauce with ham and onions and all sorts of good things. And it's a fantastic way of keeping that dried up old bird lovely and moist. It works really well. And really for us, when we're, when we're thinking and talking about Christmas food, we cannot forget the Victorians, and how they sort of invented Christmas for us, and nobody more so than Dickens, of course. And in his book, A Christmas Carol, he talks a lot about what people eat at Christmas. One of the things I find very interesting is in The Ghosts of Christmas Present, you can see Bob Cratchit and his family having a goose. And then when Scrooge um, takes heart and decides to buy them a wonderful, wonderful dinner, he buys them a turkey. And that was very representative of life in the, in the 18th century. If you were poor, you had a goose, and you probably put some money into what's called a goose club, so you could afford some meat on your table at Christmas. But if you're middle class, you probably had a turkey. But beef was still there, still the top meat for the Aristos. But turkey, we, are, we love our turkey. And the French love their turkey as well. And Briat Savaran, whose uh, book was published in 1825, and we know him for his lovely kind of very funny aphorisms about food, has this fantastic section on Turkey. He talks about Turkey and its contribution to finance. He describes going off to North America and going shooting a turkey and how it's the proudest moment of his life. And he says, Turkey is eaten by all classes, unlike, you know, Charles Dickens. And he says if a, an artisan or a, or a farmer is sitting down to celebrate something together, what will they have on the, ta on the table? They'll have a turkey. But, he says, if a very wealthy family is sitting down together, they'll have a turkey on the, fam on the table, but it will be a truffled turkey. So the, the, you know, all the meat will be kind of permeated and perfumed with this ridiculous over-the-top, gorgeous, erotic, truffly taste. So that was our turkey. If we look at Eliza Acton in 1845, she's obviously getting a little bit fed up with all these very heavy puddings. But she does have a very nice recipe, again, must recommend it, called the Author's Christmas Pudding. And it's very light, so she... She just puts breadcrumbs in instead of flour. Suet, because suet was very important to keep things moist, and she says that is very good and light. Cakes, on the other hand, she describes as sweet poisons, especially those plum pound cakes. She said they were too rich and too solid. Mrs Beaton, however, who was writing just a little bit later in 1861, her book was first published, doesn't seem to agree because she puts a big recipe for a Christmas cake in. And it's interesting because at this time, in about the mid-19th century, Mrs Beaton's talking very specifically about Christmas cakes. But in the past, 
that Christmas cake would have been a Twelfth Night cake. So it would have been the whole big, lovely, you know, mess of dried fruit and spice and butter and sugar and all those things that are going to give us a heart attack. But it would have been eaten at Twelfth Night. And so you can see how food is changing in the 19th century and Christmas is becoming a much, much bigger, more important festival. And all our traditional foods are kind of really focused on Christmas in Victorian times. And one of the, th one of the other... If you just hop across the, the Atlantic, you can see how the Americans are responding to this. And we have a lovely book by Dr. A.W. Chase, who was a, um, he was a snake oil salesman, really. He was a sort of pretend doctor in Michigan in the late 19th century. He went around collecting recipes. But he wants to really put a kind of an American signature onto food and Christmas food. And he's establishing you know, American customs. So he says a mince pie represent, is very representative for the time of year. He says the hollow crust represents the manger and the good things inside will the presents brought by the three wise men. So he's quite old-fashioned compared to Eliza Acton for his mince pies because he still has fresh beef tongue as an ingredient. But he's putting in that kind of dose of sort of homely, folky, religious... Uh, wisdom, really, into food, just to kind of make it better and more wholesome than the English version. Coming into the 20th century, we start to see people writing very specifically about Christmas traditions and Christmas food in recipe books. Agnes Jekyll was the cookery writer for The Times, and she writes beautiful little essays about what food to serve on what occasions. And actually, you get the feeling she's got pretty fed up with all this Christmassy stuff, she says that um, God invented Christmas and we've done everything we can since then to ruin it. And so she has this lovely essay called, she entitles Country Friends to a Christmas Shopping Luncheon. And she says if your, your friends come up to London, they'll be a little bit exhausted with all that shopping in the morning. You must give them a nice reviving lunch. But what she recommends is oysters au gratin or a nice Malay curry of prawns. So she's obviously got totally fed up with turkey, plum pudding and all the rest of it and is going for something completely different. So those are some of the Christmassy, or at least Christmassy to us, recipes from the Great Food series. Now, obviously, it's not a series just for Christmas. Um, it covers a range of food from all over the world, from India, Italy, France and the UK. Um, and from the last 400 years. But one of the things that's interesting about the whole series is that most of the books were written not by professional chefs, but by ordinary people encouraging other ordinary people to cook. And so my recommendation for 2012 is to go back to some original recipes, cook from them and just have fun. Penn Vogler talking about the history of your Christmas dinner. Now, next we have an extract from the audiobook edition of India Knight's wonderfully festive novel, Comfort and Joy. So I'm walking down Oxford Street, sodden by the sheeting rain, like I walk down Oxford Street, sodden by the sheeting rain, every single bastard in Christmas. Well, I say Christmas, I mean festive period, which always makes me think of menstruation, except while wearing a jaunty paper hat and blowing a tutu for fun. Poot poot! It's not actually Christmas Day. That would be tragic, or, come to think of it, maybe quite refreshing. Just me and the odd tramp and our cosy cider, rather than me and my 16 or so, um, loved ones. 
No, it's the 23rd and I'm picking up a few last-minute bits and bobs. Quite why I've left these bits and bobs so late is a mystery, but again, it's an annual ritual. If you didn't know any better, you'd think, fancy, there are people I subconsciously don't especially enjoy buying presents for, people who pop right out of my head until 23rd of December every year, when I remember not only that they exist, but that they are coming to spend Christmas at my house. Yay and wahoo! I couldn't possibly comment, except to point out that the incredibly annoying and pointless thing about my approach, you'd think I'd have figured this out by now since it happens every year, is that in the last-minute panic, I end up spending far more money on the Bits and Bobby presents for the Bits and Bobby people than I do on presents for people I really love. Take this grotesque china cat with boogly eyes and improbable eyelashes, the one I am holding in my hand right now. I've come out of the rain and into John Lewis, as apparently as half of London. Perfect for my mother-in-law. £200, you say? (sighs) Well, my goodness. I stare at the sales assistant in disbelief. Has she looked at the china cat? It's eye-bleedingly hideous. It's not very big, and here she is saying, £200, with a straight face. Also, collector's item. Yeah, maybe if you're mad... I'd rather collect those dried white dog turds you never see anymore. Why, where have they gone? No, not really. I wouldn't like to collect dog turds at all, obviously. I'm just becoming bad-tempered, which always makes me go a bit internal Tourette's. It's just... It's so much money. Having glared, I smile penitently at the sales assistant and gingerly hand the cat back. But then I go trawling off round to the bath salts and novelty gifts bit of John Lewis... And there are so many people. And having been cold 15 minutes ago in my parker, despite the fact that it is designed to withstand temperatures down to minus 20 degrees, I am now boiling hot. And I think I can't give her bath salts again, or soaps. It's got to the stage where it looks like I'm making a point about personal hygiene. And she doesn't read books, and she doesn't listen to music, and she has no hobbies, except collecting cats. So... Off I return to the China animal concession, sweating lightly, forcing a smile that probably looks more like a death rictus. £200. £200. The financial markets are falling apart. Sam keeps muttering darkly that our mortgage is about to do something terrible. I'm wearing frankly shabby underwear that I'd like to replace. And I've just spent £200 on a China cat that looks like it came via a full-page ad in a Sunday supplement. Pretty Lady Puscat needs a home. Look at her pleading eyes and feel your heart give way. Fashioned from the finest porcelain by skilled craftsmen, Lady Puscat will be your cherished friend. It gives me a lurch in my stomach to think of the cost, on top of which I'm now paranoid about dropping Lady Puscat. I'm going to tell Pat, my mother-in-law, that this is what it's called. I know exactly what she'll say. Oh, isn't that grand! Lady Puscat, what a beautiful name. Isn't that grand? Pat likes to sandwich normal speech between two expressions. The thought of it makes me smile to myself with a mixture of love and irritation. This is more than I spend on my own mother, I note as I hand over my credit card. Well, more than I initially spend on my own mother. But at least Pat will be really pleased with the cat. She'll appreciate it and say thank you nicely and and put it on her special cat shelf and possibly get a little piece of card and write Lady Puscat on it in her best handwriting 
and place it reverently underneath. Lucy Brown, star of Primeval, reading Comfort and Joy by India Knight. Now, back to the food. Next up is Juliet Annan, the publishing director of Fig Tree, reading a lovely recipe for blinis from Felicity Cloak's Penguin Short, Perfect Christmas Day. I'm Juliet Annan, and I'm the publisher of the brilliant Felicity Cloak, whose columns in The Guardian, the perfect columns, how to make the perfect, you may be familiar with. She also has a wonderful food blog. But here she's talking to us about Christmas and how to prepare for the perfect Christmas day. All the recipes you need in one place. So, blinis. It's funny how this peculiarly Eastern European dish has become such a firm favourite at Western festive celebrations, particularly given that in much of its traditional heartland, Christmas doesn't even happen for another two weeks. In any case, there it's regarded as a Lenten dish. In other ways, though, it's no surprise. The affinity of these little pancakes with smoked fish is unparalleled, and however common salmon may have become, the smoked stuff still carries a whiff of luxury, and their warm fluffiness is far more welcome at this time of year than a crisp Italian bruschetta. You can buy ready-made blini, of course, but these sad little scraps of flannel are no match for the homemade kind, hot and crisp from the pan. In fact, I'd go so far as to say they're as pointless as buying frozen roast potatoes. There are as many forms of blini, the plural form one blin, two blini, as Fabergé eggs, but the small, thick sort are the best ones for canapes, where the golden rule is that they should be garnished in a single, satisfied gulp. After all, it would be a shame to spoil that Christmas jumper with an errant blob of sour cream. The celebrated Californian chef... Thomas Keller, makes a version with pureed waxy potatoes, which are like a cross between a, a rushti and the kind of blini I'm used to. Tasty but heavy fare before Christmas dinner. In fact, without a raising agent of any kind, they hardly qualify as pancakes at all. Darina Allen's Ballymaloo cookery course supplies a cheats recipe using ordinary white flour, bicarbonate of soda and cream of tartare. It's convenient in that it only requires an hour to rise before cooking, but fluffy and homely, it's more like a miniature crumpet than anything exotically eastern. So I think buckwheat is what's required for an authentically earthy, vodka-swigging, devil-may-care flavour. Not that anyone swigs vodka at Christmas in my household, perhaps the last bastion of unreconstructed sherry drinking. This cereal crop has long been popular in Russia and the former Soviet states, as it does well in conditions too challenging for modern wheat, and its nutty, rustic character is sufficiently distinctive to ensure that no one would mistake buckwheat blinis for pikelets. Buckwheat can be rather overpowering on its own, however, so I make a recipe from Breton baker Richard Bertinet, which uses a half-and-half -half mixture of buckwheat and strong white flour and lightens the batter with whisked egg whites. This is an utter revelation, straight from the plan, the blini of feather light with a very grown-up, bitter edge which sends me straight back for a second helping, burning my fingers in the process. Bertinet opts for creme fraiche in his recipe, but I prefer the more aggressive tang of sour cream. Finnish chef Helena Purlaka uses ale in her blini as well but the strong malty notes clash with the fears that, in the absence of a pre-dinner vodka tradition in this country, generally partners these little pancakes. 
Bertie Ney's double rise method produced by far the lightest results, so I've adhered largely to this traditional recipe, but have added caraway seeds to make these blinis so very delicious they could easily be eaten on their own with just a dollop of sour cream for company if you don't eat or like seafood. I love them with smoked trout, chopped chives and a little beady black fish roe. If you can't overload a canopy at Christmas, then when can you? You could also make your blinis slightly bigger and serve them with smoked fish as a starter. Here comes the recipe. This makes about 35 and you need 150 millilitres of milk, 70 grams of buckwheat flour, 70 grams of strong white flour, 1 teaspoon of salt, 2 teaspoons of caraway seeds, 2 free-range eggs, 4 grams of dried yeast, 100 grams of sour cream, 25 grams of butter. Heat the milk in a small pan until it just boils. While it heats, put the flowers, salt and caraway seeds into a large bowl and separate the eggs. When the milk begins to boil, take it off the heat and stir in the yeast, followed by the egg yolks and the sour cream. You'll need to stir vigorously with each addition. Pour the contents of the pan slowly into the bowl of flour, stirring as you do so. When you have a smooth paste, cover and leave in a warm place for an hour or until spongy. It won't rise dramatically, but it should have expanded slightly and have developed a few bubbles on the surface. Whisk the egg whites to soft peaks and then very gently fold them into the mixture using a rubber spatula. Once thoroughly mixed, cover and leave for another two hours. When ready to cook, melt the butter in a large frying pan over a medium-high heat. Add the batter in teaspoons to the pan and cook until bubbles rise to the top. Then flip them over and cook for another minute or so on the other side until golden brown. You'll probably need to do this in batches, so keep them warm while you cook the rest. These are best hot from the pan. Juliet Annan, reading from Felicity Cloak's Perfect Christmas Day. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit our website at penguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at at penguinpodcast on Twitter. Merry Christmas from everyone here at Penguin Books. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.